welcome to The Big Juggle, the podcast where I talk to fellow mums and experts in their fields about navigating life with a baby or two in tow. I'm Jessica Weinstein, and this episode I talk to Nina Hobson, um, who is a freelance writer and blogger, um, and I love talking to her for this episode, um, because in addition to being a writer um, and a mum, she is an expat. So she's an expat mum, originally from the UK. Um, She's lived in over 10 countries, most recently Ecuador, and has had each of her three children in a different country. I found it so interesting to hear how she juggles the constant relocation, establishing herself in a new country, learning new languages and cultural norms, all with the day-to-day responsibility of being a mum. I hope you enjoy this episode and maybe even learn something new. So I've been having a bit of a read um, around your blog and um, I mean, it's it's so interesting um, kind of the, the story that you tell and kind of the life that you're living because it's, you know, it's in real time, isn't it? I think um, it's perhaps quite unusual when I compare it to you know some of my friends living here in the UK it's a very unique uh, lifestyle I guess but um, obviously I have so many friends living abroad now that you know when I compare you know my lifestyle to theirs (laughs) it can feel very dull at times but um, (laughs) yeah I guess it's uh, it's unusual for a lot of people particularly this constantly yeah moving around from one country to the next um, especially with kids in tow. Yeah, so you say on your blog that you've lived in over 30 countries. 13, well, 13 places. I mean, it's right. what you really call living in. Um, you know, sometimes it's been, I was meant to visit for just a holiday and then I decided to stay on for several months. Um, and then sometimes it's been a planned move for work, you know, whatever reason that um, we've gone and, you know, it's been a couple of years. So, um, yeah, it depends what you call really uh, living in. But yes, I've lived in uh, many different countries, um, but I'm just temporarily in the UK right now because of um, darn COVID. <laughs> yeah. So how, how is that affecting your expatting life? Um, um, what were you doing in the UK? Did you come back when kind of lockdown first hit? Yeah, so I was living, It was, the plan was, we were living in um, Chile, that's me, my husband and our three children. The plan was to move to Ecuador, where we thought things would be so much easier, we'd get a house with a garden, um, I'd be able to work. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a blogger and I'm a, I'm a freelance writer as well, so I thought it would be quite easy. Um But then, yeah, when we ended up in Ecuador, it was actually really hard um, just by a series of accidents, uh, fluke disappointments and COVID really impacting things a lot more than I than I imagined. And it just got so tough that I think it came to a certain point. I threw my hands up and said, I just can't take this anymore. It's beginning to affect, you know, my health, um, you know, my physical and mental health. My kids as well were really struggling um and I just couldn't really think properly so I decided to come back to the UK and even when people have been asking you know oh how did you cope uh, you know with your two weeks in quarantine it was just so easy in comparison I just feel yeah so relieved so grateful um and um it sounds like a cliche but I'm just really really happy um and grateful to be here so do you think you're going to be um, kind of stationing yourself in the UK for a bit longer or are there still plans to continue travelling when you can? 
No, definitely. We plan, um, I plan to move abroad as, as soon as possible. It was just, it got so tough um, in Ecuador. The um, uh, Because of the pandemic and perhaps other reasons, the crime got a bit worse where we were staying. And I felt quite scared, to be honest. Um, and I just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, so I came back to the UK just for a bit of a breather, just to be able to think a bit more, mm-hmm. a bit more clearly. You know, it just... We were in a hotel. I couldn't leave the hotel room a lot of the time with my three kids and just being stuck indoors a lot of the time. And it felt like um, I couldn't, you know, go and just get some fresh air. I couldn't, you know, speak to any friends. And uh, it all just got on top of me. And I was just so tired. We had, um, you know, it was a very nice hotel, but we had three beds between five of us. So it was a constant, you know, fighting for the beds every night, musical beds every night. And so it was just... uh, Really, just the idea was come back to the UK, have a bit of a breather and, you know, think about the different options available now. Gosh, that sounds very intense. Um, yeah. Even without kind of the external factors of the pandemic and living in a foreign country. Um, wow. You mentioned, obviously, you were struggling with your kids um, and so on. How does the expat life work with children? I mean, you're moving around a lot, different languages, different ways of life. How do you kind of combine all of that? I think the hardest thing, I mean, as I understand this, you know, this podcast is all about the juggle. And, you know, a lot of us talk about, you know, the guilt and the sense of responsibility we have for our children. And I think that is sort of yeah, times 10 um, as an expat mum or living abroad for whatever reason. Um, at the end of the day, if I, you know, I've lived in Angola and in Syria and um, I volunteered in Lebanon and, you know, they were great experiences. But doing that now with my children, it's a whole new level of responsibility. If I chose to go, choose to go to these places, you know, that's all well and good. Um, but when I'm taking my kids, you know, they don't really have much say in the matter. Obviously, I talk to them about it and we try and, you know, understand their feelings but it's not like a you know a two or four year or six year old can really explain what they really want or even know what's in their best interest so yeah it's it's a huge responsibility um and you know I could argue well I think I'm giving them a better quality of life I think I'm you know broadening their horizons um I think I'm showing them you know some incredible you know life experiences um but it's a huge responsibility you know at the end of the day in uh lockdown in in Ecuador was very very hard and there were some you know some stressful situations in Chile as well there were some um social unrest uh last year and things got you know tough at times you know our kids we were very sheltered um you know you could argue living in a bubble or whatever but um all this has an impact on our children and yeah it's a huge responsibility and how many countries have your children lived in so my eldest is six he was uh born in switzerland and then pretty quickly uh when he was a month or so um i moved to uh, belgium uh so he went to kindergarten in belgium then he went to preschool in the uk uh and then he went to his first school in chile we moved then briefly to ecuador um and now we're back in the uk temporarily so yeah um Mm. Yeah, many. <laughs> uh, wow. and let's see where we go next, either back to Ecuador or 
potentially to Uruguay or who knows, even somewhere else. I think um, like most people at this during the pandemic, just taking one step, step at a time and seeing where we end up. Who knows? Of course. And theoretically, mm-hmm. um, obviously, pandemic aside, assuming life goes back to normal or, you know, close enough to normal. Um, do you do you plan on continuing this kind of traveling life? Or have you said, you know, when my children get to a certain age, you're going to settle down in a country so that they can finish their education or, you know, for whatever other reason? Yeah, I think the plan is always, um, yeah, when my eldest child is quite sensitive, I guess. And I feel that it would be tough on him, this constantly moving, you know, making new friends, constantly starting school again, you know, fresh faces. Um, So ideally, you know, I think when he reaches an age of, we'd always said in our head sort of 11 years old, then we try and settle a bit more, perhaps Spain, where my husband's from. But Uh, who knows it's very easy to say these things and then you know life happens and you know you make choices at the end of the day um it's like living in a new country um all expats or you know friends I meet abroad you know planning a move they always seem to say oh three years um it's just here for three years and you know people in Belgium particularly get in what we call the the Brussels trap you go for three years and you end up there for 12 years um and then other times you know people have moved um you know like ourselves moving to Ecuador and plan to move there for three years and then you know I just felt oh I can't last another week here let alone three years um so who knows, each step at a time. But yeah, I think the plan is when um, I feel that it's really impacting on my kids in a negative way, this constant moving, then we're going to have to slow down or really adapt our lifestyle a bit. And in terms of deciding what country you're going to go to next or you know what area of a country you're going to go to, um, are you driven by you know your job sends you to a certain place or do you tend to choose where you're going to go and then kind of carve out a bit of a life based on that yeah I mean people always said you know when I said oh I'm a bit nervous about going you know to whichever place and people say oh move to Canada it's fantastic or you know move to the south of France it's wonderful but at the end of the day you need to work and it needs to have the country needs to have a sensible cost of living so at the end of the day finances you know are very, very important. That's often what it comes down to is being able to afford um, a better quality of life. Um, but obviously, weighing that up, the most important things, you know, particularly now we've got children, um, are health and safety. So my middle child, he has um, anaphylaxis, so a strong allergy, super strong allergy um, to pumpkin seeds of all things. And that really was a moment that, you know, I realised health is so, so, so important. I wouldn't be prepared to live in the places that I've lived in without kids. I wouldn't be prepared to take my kids there anymore. I just feel it's it's too risky. So, yeah, health and, you know, general security for me as a mum, you know, some people, some of my friends might call me paranoid. Um, some of my friends, you know, in the UK might think I'm quite, um, you know, uh, carefree about this. So I take in, you know, lots of different uh, factors into consideration. But um, I'm quite lucky with my work as a, you know, I've, I've crafted my career around something that allows us as a family to move around so often I've had to switch and adapt my sort of nine to five office job um, to be able to do this, to be able to juggle life constantly moving um, and moving with kids, you know, 
whenever you move somewhere as well, um, it has a huge emotional toll on the children. So um, I'm like the the uh, the wingman or whatever the expression is for you know first checking that they're all good, uh, then settling in. And it's just when you've done that that often we uh, find that when we decide that we need to move on again. And how has that been? Because I mean, obviously it's 2020, so mm. we have amazing ways of staying in touch with people. But you know, your children are six and younger, mm. so they build these relationships. But I suppose they're not going to be, no. you know, WhatsApping and having Skype calls and so on in the same way that you would. Um, I mean, it must be hard enough for you and your husband to mm. build these relationships and then you move away. But how has that been with the children? Really hard. I mean, even when we were in a lockdown in Chile, I think the lockdown was perhaps a bit uh, stricter uh, where we were in Santiago compared to, well, certainly my uh, family here in uh, rural Yorkshire. Um, mm. They didn't even, you know, they don't really get Zoom or Skype or WhatsApp. They always just come out with the same, you know, rehearsed uh, lines of, hello, whoever it is, I love you, bye-bye, and that's it. Even, you know, my husband's still in Ecuador, and they don't really get what it's like, you know, having somebody on a screen, and that adult on the screen um, or older child who does get it can be quite disappointed saying, oh, come on, tell me about you, tell me what's what's happening, whatever, and they, they, don't, they don't get it, you know, speaking to a screen. Um, we haven't done an online schooling in that sense. We've been quite lucky that we've uh, missed out on all that with all the moves. We've been um, homeschooling, so we haven't had this, you know, you've got to be online at, you know, 9am or 10am, got to do your homework or whatever. We've been very free um, in that sense. But no, they, it's sad, but at the end of the day, I don't think they would get the whole, you know, communication online. They're too young and it, it just doesn't work like that. Mm. So you said that your husband is still in Ecuador. Has he been there since you returned to the UK? Yeah, um, I thought it was going to be really tough in terms of the just the travel back. So we had to go from Quito via Spain, um, you know, to London and then got to get on a train here. And there were so many steps on the way and with three kids, um, you know, trying to get them to wear masks and, you know, not touch stuff and wash their hands or whatever. That was quite hard. Um, um, but not as hard as I expected. In fact, it's been the, I think, just more emotionally not having, you know, my husband around to just at the end of the day, have a glass of wine together and sort of, oof, take stop, watch a bit of Netflix, yeah. you know, and uh, I'm really lucky. I'm staying at my mum's and, you know, she's a best friend and she's so hands-on with the kids um that's why I can speak to you now because she's um downstairs with my um with my three kids right now um so yeah it's but it, it's not a normal relationship whereby you know your husband's thousands of miles away um and you know they can't they can't see uh, my kids can't see their dad every day it's it's sad but you know at the end of the day compared to what other people are going through um yeah we're very very lucky do you um anticipate that you'll see him again, you know, once you're allowed to travel freely or is he going to stay out there for a longer period of time? Yeah, it's hard. I think I'm quite a planner. Um, I get quite stressed and anxious about things. I try, I try I'm getting better at it, but um, I recognise that just that's just a part about way about me. My husband's very chilled out and, you know, he says, oh, well, you know, I'll get a flight and, you know, I'll, I'll see you soon. I think he's finding it hard being away from the kids. Um, 
but he's quite chilled in the sense of there's a pandemic going on. Um, he can't be here right now. As soon as he can be here, he will be here. And if that means, you know, working from home and, you know, persuading the big cheeses in his company that, you know, he needs to be out of the office for quite a long time, you know, in order to do the two week quarantine and whatever. Um, yeah, so be it. But yeah, it, it's tough. Um, I found it really, really stressful, to be honest, really stressful, a lot more stressful than uh, I was imagining. I think a lot of people have found that because there's so much uncertainty mm. um, anyway, you know, even if you're in your house that you've always lived in, um, you know, you, nobody really knows what the rules are or what the rules are going to be or, you know, when things are going to change. And obviously if you're traveling um, your husband's in a different country, that just adds extra kind of stresses um, into the mix of a very, an already very stressful situation. So um Hats off to oh, you. <laughs> thank you. I think, yeah, I could sort of, I felt a bit guilty almost. I think like a lot of mums, um, you know, I think, God, you know, we're so lucky, you know, we've got food, groceries, you know, we've got computers that we can work. My husband can work, you know, from home, um, particularly in Chile, seeing people, you know, going through really, really, really tough times, you know, particularly, you know, financially, and then friends who'd lost loved ones to COVID. It felt a bit selfish almost to complain. It's like the whole parenting thing in general, you know, if you complain about your kid whinging, then, you know, parents without people without kids will say, you know, well, why did you have them in the first place? Um, and I think I sort of, I didn't really make it clear to myself or recognize the stress that I was facing myself. Um, when I moved back, um, it was such a relief, um, I think, getting back to the UK and just feeling safe again and just feeling like so much weight off my shoulders. I started getting all these ulcers on my tongue and um, it was really bizarre. Like my whole tongue just um ended up so swollen that I couldn't speak and then it got to the point I couldn't breathe properly um oh. so I ended up in A&E and um yeah they didn't know what it is they were doing some tests and the doctor said look you're just stressed um not you're just stressed but it's um it's amazing what stress can do on the body without you realizing you know and when you don't mm. even recognize it you think you think things are all going tickety-boo and um actually you know underlying it's all, you know, festering without us realising. I feel like that's also a very, a very female situation mm. to be in, um, to just kind of shove your feelings right down to the mm. bottom until your body says, okay, I'm going to have to do something drastic now mm. so that you kind of take notice um, and either rest or, you know, whatever it is that you need to do. Um, but gosh, that must have, that must have been very um, scary and stressful again. Yeah, it was like this sort of, vicious cycle but interestingly you know I mentioned I talked about it on you know Instagram and to some friends and so many particularly women came out and said uh yep same thing happened to me it's not that abnormal I mean the doctor had never seen it before he said he'd never seen he didn't think stress could cause something like this because it was so you know, it was quite extreme nor did I um but yeah that seems to be what it was I mean I get psoriasis as well and it's just that it's the body saying you know, I've had enough. Um, yeah, and Chile, one of the doctors said he has a lot of mums uh, come to him with uh, just this psoriasis that it gets to the point, you know, a little rash develops and develops, develops, and it can get to the point that it starts affecting your joints. And if you just don't do something about it, you know, your body's just saying, no, 
enough. I'm not having this anymore. Um, but yeah, it's insane what you know the your mind, stress in the mind, um, can do to your body. It's horrid. <laughs> mm. It is. It's interesting that you mentioned that you went to the doctor in Chile and then you also went to A&E here. Um, Because obviously living in different countries, you come up against kind of different um, health systems and so Mm. on. And I was interested to hear about, you mentioned that um, your children were born in different Mm. countries. So what's it like to be pregnant in different countries, different cultures and go through the kind of the different health systems and so on? I was so lucky. I mean, giving birth, the first time I gave birth was in Switzerland. And um, yeah, I mean, it was a private healthcare system. And yeah, I kept on calling it a hotel by accident because I mean, it was (laughs) incredible. I haven't stayed in hotels that nice, (laughs) let alone hospitals. I mean, it was another world. I mean, you know, I, I think in terms of the healthcare in the UK, you think if something went really wrong, like the doctors are incredible. It was the aftercare that in Switzerland was just out of this world and just so lovely. Like the whole looking back, it was just such a I just see it with, you know, rose tinted spectacles. The whole thing was so wonderful. You know, I'd wake up and, you know, there'd be a newspaper, um, silver cutlery. You know, I could literally order champagne through the phone. Um, it was, I mean, it was a joke. I mean, I was sort of giggling to my husband. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. Um, yeah. And then giving birth on the in NHS in the UK uh, was quite a different experience. I mean, I had room to myself. It was, you know, really lovely. And the nurses, the midwives were amazing. They were doing their best, but, you know, in completely different situation. I mean, the, I was told, you know, in the middle of labor, sorry, somebody else has come in and she's worse than you. So I'm going to leave you this point on your own. Um, it was the second child, my second child then. So I wasn't too freaked out. But yeah, it was quite scary to think, oh, if somebody else comes in now, you know, I'm going to be left in the lurch. Um, and, you know, straight after giving birth, it was a case of, oh, somebody else needs me. So, you know, you're on your own and no help in terms of breastfeeding. I went through, yeah, I mean, I can call it hell with my second child. He had, you know, allergies. He had um, lots of issues when he was born. He had tongue tie, you know, it wasn't picked up and went through a really, really, really hard time um, because these things just weren't, I just didn't have the support. And then in Chile, um, my third child was born with very similar issues, but they were picked up immediately and we got them sorted. And yeah, I I feel that she was much healthier for it. So I don't, it's not like I'm blaming the doctors or blaming the system. Um, I just feel, I can't help but feel a bit resentful that with my second child, things weren't picked up on. And I feel that if if they were, I would have had a very, very different experience. I mean, it got to the point with my second child, it was so stressful, uh, so horrid. He was so, so sick um, that, you know, I went to a council meeting, like a, you know, a health checkup. Um, and they said, you know, have you had suicidal thoughts? Tick the box. Have you considered self-harming? Tick the box. It was so horrendous. And the lady sort of looked astonished and she said, oh, thank you for your very honest feedback. Um, To be honest, I don't really know what to say. And that was it. And nothing was done about it. Um, Yeah, honestly, I get a bit (laughs) tearful just thinking about it. It was so, so horrible. 
Um, and then obviously with my third child living with a completely different level of support um, and having, you know, the expat community rally, rally around me. Um, yeah, I felt a lot less alone, to be honest, abroad than ironically I did in the UK. Gosh, that's um, that's really shocking. How, I mean, did were you able to resolve, mm. obviously not the way that it affected you, um, but at the very least your, your child's health issues in the UK or no yeah, I mean at that the, point, the idea was anyway and so you were dealing with it in another Nigeria actually um but because my second child was so sick and because these things you know weren't sorted out I didn't feel comfortable moving him um and my toddler at that time to Nigeria where you know the health system you know wasn't great okay there was a private system to fall back on but you know it was often a case of if if things you know get really bad in the UK the health system is incredible you know the surgeons you know second to none and I just I didn't know what I was dealing with I didn't know how sick my second child was um so often these things were quite simple procedures you know things like tongue tie should have been sorted out um, but I didn't know what was going on, you know, his allergy, I didn't know. And he just getting, you know, doctors just kept pumping him with um, antibiotics. And I don't know, there's lots of different reasons why he might have his allergy today. Um, but I do suspect that being pumped full of uh, antibiotics as a baby really didn't help. Um, you know, I'm trying not to dwell too much onto the past but yeah it's very difficult he, he's happy and he's healthy and he's he's perfect now I mean as long as I've got his um his EpiPen in case he has an attack you know we're, we're all good so you know he's absolutely fine um but yeah I can't help but feeling you know a little bit resentful that that what things weren't sorted out um quicker you know in terms of his physical health yeah and I suppose it's it feels like it's doubly upsetting in a way that it happened in the UK. You'd be maybe quicker to excuse it if it happened abroad because it's yeah. not your home country. Um, but for it to happen, you know, in yeah, the UK where I you grew up really must have been quite angry uh, jarring. In the sense that this was my second child. I knew something wasn't right. There were lots of little, there were lots of issues going on with him. And I felt, you know, we could afford you know, at the end of the day, if we needed private care, we could have afforded it. But I had a woman going through something similar who couldn't afford it. And I just thought, you know, if you can't afford it, or if it's your first child, and you don't have a clue what's going on. Um, I've also got really supportive parents who, you know, were driving me, you know, northeast, southwest to try and get to the bottom of what was wrong with him. Um, but if you didn't have that, you know, you'd be completely stranded. Um, you know, it got to the point I was just so, so, you know, I hadn't slept for two weeks and I, I started hallucinating because it was just, you know, just the lack of sleep gets to you. And I thought, you know, if somebody didn't have you know, parents that they could rely on, mm. didn't have that, you know, financial security, you know, to think, oh, if things get, you know, really bad, we can take him to a, a private hospital. My husband's from Spain and it was always, you know, if we can, if things get really, really bad, we're getting on a plane and we're going to see a doctor in Spain and getting to the bottom of this. But I just thought, you know, for other people that can't do this, um, you know, what's their plan? Um, I think I just felt, you know, angry more than anything at the time. Um, you know, and in terms of, you know, the NHS, my now six-year-old mm. he um he wants he got his finger trapped like horribly in a gate here in the uk and the nhs were wonderful at seeing him you know it was an emergency situation and 
you know, basically like a horror story. He got it trapped and, um, you know, he st started screaming and then quickly stopped, went white and, you know, held his hand up and fingers that were meant to be there just weren't there anymore. I mean, it was horrendous. Got, you know, but then got him to the hospital and amazing. Oh, they managed to, you know, craft a hand out of nothing. I mean, you literally can't tell. And I think, thank goodness, you know, I was living in the UK at that moment because the, you know, the NHS then really did come up Trump. So, yeah, I've got very, very mixed feelings um, about, you know, the UK in general um, and particularly about the NHS right now. So um, I think you kind of touched on it earlier um, when I asked you, you know, if you mm. can, at what point you consider kind of stopping traveling and settling down. But um I mean, where do you call home? Would you say that the UK is your home or yeah, is it kind it's of where you are, you're living at any given home. time? I think there's always a need to say where your home is. And I don't know if it's home is one place or it's more like almost part of you, if that makes sense. So it's not like you say my home is the UK or my home is where I am now. It's more like a, an identity thing, I guess. So I'd say to people, you know, I'm British uh right now i'm you know wherever i'm living but i don't know the con i don't know if i really get the concept of a home if that makes sense i don't i don't know if i really have a home or even feel the need you know my home is my family um my home is you know having people that i can rely on my home as you know my best friend uh my close friends um but it's not it's not a place it's more a feeling. Mm, that's. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say poetic, but I don't mean it in a patronising way. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of home is where your heart is, but and wherever exactly. I lay my hat, that's my home. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that's interesting. I mean, you, you've obviously embraced this kind of nomadic lifestyle, um, and I feel like it's a very particular kind of person who would live like that and um, kind of enjoy it and see, you know, want to continue with it, but also be able to craft a proper life. Um, obviously, you know, you're a freelance writer, so you can do that anywhere. Um, but how do you, how do you find kind of the life admin side of things, the working out what jobs to take, if you can take them, you know, are you going to be moving think, in the middle of a job yeah, the plan. Um, and so on? When I first started, you know, moving countries, the plan was always, okay, settle in, um, find a job or find a job and then settle in, you know, even start looking for jobs before you move, get interviews all lined up. But then with kids, it's a case of, well, they have to come first. So, you know, you find them a job and then, you know, check emotionally that the rule settles in and then um, and then find a job. Um, I'm lucky in the sense that we didn't have to, you know, rush financially to think oh god you know I've got to find something you know immediately in order just to get by um but because you know with moving countries so often um I really needed I decided that I couldn't keep move to a country you know take a few months to get settled get my kids settled whatever then find a job and then have to give it up again to start all over again I couldn't keep switching jobs and that's when I realized that I'm going to have to do something different here so I used to work in uh, PR and communications very much a 
nine to six um, office job, but that just wasn't going to work anymore. So realized that I had to switch to doing something more remote, remote, something more online. So I think in that sense, quite a few expat mums, um, you know, we all said in terms of the coronavirus, we found the tr transition, you know, quite easy. Yes, lockdown was really hard, you know, for whatever reason, but we were very well prepared for it in the sense that we were used to having to, you know, work from home, to juggle with the kids, to having these, you know, emotional tantrums, to understanding, you know, where everybody's coming from. Um, and also the whole sort of feeling that, you know, we've regressed as women, you know, having to go back to sort of 1950s style, like the, this whole identity crisis, you know, we've dealt with this and we've, you know, I think, you know, a lot of my friends were very strong feminists and, you know, we know, we've been through this sort of shock, this identity shock of feeling, you know, moving abroad as an, uh, as an accompanying spouse, you know, with a family, um, it can be really hard and people can often judge you or identify you, you know, through your husband or through a man, particularly if you're living in a country uh, like Chile, for example, that can be quite uh, macho, macho, dare I say it. Yes, yes. Mm. So you were recently um, profiled by the Financial Times. <laughs> you wrote on your, yeah, you wrote on your blog. Oh, a bit that of a bone, had, um, yeah, that's one way to put it. To pick. Um, <laughs> sure, so, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? About um, expats um, moving back to the UK um, during the pandemic. Um, and the article quoted me as the woman whose Spanish husband works in finance. I was just so disappointed. I couldn't put my finger on it, first of all, why it was, but it was just this sort of feeling in the pit of my stomach. Here I am. I am, you know, reaching out on a PR level. I'm doing all my best. I'm building my blog. I'm a, I really tried so hard to craft my own career as a woman um, as an expat, constantly moving, you know, I haven't just sat back by the poolside. I really worked so damn hard to create my own job, to create my own career, um, you know, to build my blog from nothing to something that, you know, now pays its way, um, that's now helping me financially. And yet here I am quoted as the wife of. And my husband had no bearing in the story. He was not he had, you know, he wasn't mentioned anywhere else. And I just thought, why am I being mentioned um, through my husband? What has he got to do with it? This is, you know, we're meant to be 2020. And here we are, particularly in the pandemic, when, you know, as mothers, we're going through so much trying to juggle everything. And yet, no matter how hard I try, I am always going to be the wife of a husband working in finance, because nothing else matters. No matter how hard I try, I'm always just going to be the wife of and yeah, I just felt, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear here, but I just felt so utterly pissed off. Um, and I said to friends, look, how do you feel about this? And they said, you know, I'm really angry. And if you don't speak up about this, you're not letting your, just letting yourself down, you're letting us all down. Um, and yeah, as a journalist myself, um, it wasn't a case of having a go at the writer or the publication. It was just a case of this is something that happens and we need to speak out about it. I mean, I've done it, as I mentioned, you know, I've written things on my blog, which unintentionally, you know, have had other meanings. Like I wrote something and I didn't mean it to be racist, 
but it came across that way and, and uh, a reader mentioned it she wrote to me or commented on the post and I thought oh my god you're absolutely right I felt dreadful obviously I corrected it straight away emailed her and yeah I'd like to think I'm I'm learning from it and even the whole word expat you know there was a big conversation we had on Instagram and through friends privately about the word expat for a lot of people it has a lot of entitled you know connotations about it there's a you know some people call it classist some people would say it's racist but I think it's really important to call things out you know in the media be it you know gender bias whatever to call it out um, politely but firmly, um, not let people, you know, get away with it, not necessarily have a go at them, but just, you know, mention it so that we can move on from it. Otherwise, you know, we're never going to get anywhere. Um, so, yeah, I think it made me really angry, but um, it's something that I've really learned from. And um, I've got a lot of feedback from women all over the globe and from friends saying, yeah, thank you. And you're not alone. This is something we're all facing. Um, so, yeah, it felt good. Good. I'm glad there was some kind of positive um, ending. Um, you know, you, you described um, Chile as macho macho, but then obviously the Financial Times is a UK publication, um, which and you kind of mm. um, found that they were quite, I don't know, misogynistic, maybe. Um so it's interesting, you know, these two very different countries with very different cultures have, even though you kind of came to almost the same conclusion about them, how have you found kind of adjusting to these different cultures as you've been traveling? You know, is there an element of culture shock? Is there an element of almost walking into a place and having to think for a moment before you kind yeah, of continue Yeah, I mean, through it depends. Kind of Sometimes yourself? it's actually the countries which you think are very similar um, or you imagine they're going to be very similar and they're not, that can be the most jarring. So, you know, when you, when I was living in Syria, it felt very foreign. So, and I'd had quite a bit of training from volunteering in um, a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon in terms of, in very conservative societies, what to say, what not to say, how to dress, um, you know, what in terms of body language, what was acceptable and what was not, you know, on a societal level. But then you obviously, you don't get that kind of training or you don't even think about it moving somewhere uh, closer to home. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment about America and just how foreign it is. And I've never lived in the US. Um, I've holiday, been on holiday there a lot. Um, and I hear a lot of expats say that they're expecting the US to be very similar, having so many American friends and moved there and just thought, wow, this is really foreign to me. Um, as for me, um, my husband's Spanish. Um, he's from a devout, he's very, very uh, Catholic himself. It's His faith is extremely important to him. Um, and sometimes I can sort of forget that. And, you know, living with his family, they've had a very, where his family have had a very, very different upbringing to me, myself, an atheist. Um, sometimes I can say things and think, oh gosh, that was really offensive. Or, oh, I can't believe they said that. Um, I don't agree with that, you know? So sometimes when, I think it's mostly when you don't expect it to be so different that you can get really caught out. That's interesting, but I can see how that, yeah, how that would make sense. You think you're walking into, especially I suppose with the comparison between America and the UK, uh -huh. you think, oh, well, they're essentially the same. We speak the same language, you know, it, it all seems very similar. Um, 
but yeah, there must be definitely an element of adjustment. And if you're not expecting that, um, yeah, and also what type of person you are yourself, you know, I think I, Um, um, actually, I mean, I settled in pretty well in Chile. I love living in Chile. It's a lot of people say Chile is not South America, um, because it's very, the people can be, can be quite reserved, um, you know, on a practical level, think in general, things work very well. It's quite an efficient country, you know, in general. Um, my husband, Spanish, much more carefree, who loved living in Nigeria, really, you know, constantly resents us not moving to Nigeria. Um, he found it really tough and he found the culture very, very difficult to adapt to. So it's also can be a bit about, you, you know, you yourself as a how you are in terms of your personality your values um and you can move somewhere and find find it quite tough for those reasons Mm. and when it comes to you know making friends and living your life kind of outside the professional um side of things were you uh in kind of I suppose an expat bubble or did you make friends with uh the people you know you were living yeah yeah (laughs) Um, can you say that (laughs) so when I when I first you know started living in different countries it was almost like a a target to meet you know meet foreigners don't mix with locals don't go don't stay in the bubble you know get out as much as possible and I think I've relaxed now and it's a case of I'm not going to make an issue of meeting people based on their nationality I'm meeting people because of who they are um I'm I'm recognizing my bubble more and more like uh you know be it in Chile or wherever I'm living, or even in the UK, um, you know, when Brexit hit, so many of my friends down south said, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. And they didn't know anybody that had voted uh, leave. Um, And living in the north, and, you know, I'd like to think, you know, I've got a reasonably diverse set of friends, you know, it was really 50-50. Um, you know, I voted to remain, but a lot of my friends, you know, for different reasons, they voted to leave. And yes, it can be quite jarring, but I realized that, you know, most of my friends at the end of the day, they've been to university, um, you know, educated women, probably, you know, mostly uh, white, most living in the UK. I don't know, you sort of realize, if anything, it's not necessarily a good thing, but when you understand your bubble, you can make some efforts to to get out of that bubble or you know to re- i think when you know about it it's not as bad as you know when you're blatantly thinking you know, you're carrying on in your bubble and you just don't even know it um i'd like to think as i've moved abroad i've got far more friends of different you know ages uh you know different races different you know religious backgrounds um i remember meeting in um, Belgium, meeting up for, you know, meet for coffee with girlfriends on a Wednesday. And it was lovely. We were sitting there and we realized that, you know, we were all from different countries. And there was a girl there who was 19 and there was another lady there who was uh, 92. So, yeah, I think I'm aware that I'm in a bubble, but I don't think it's necessarily because I'm an expat. I think, you know, we're all maybe guilty or we're all perhaps if we're not careful we all live in a bubble I I ask everyone that I speak to um two questions um and I'm interested to see because obviously you've lived in lots of different countries um so you've kind of been privy to a wider range of products um 
products for children, products for raising your children, and also ways to raise your children. So I'm interested to see oh, um, what your answer to this question will be. <laughs> um, what product are you aware of now, but you weren't aware of or, you know, didn't exist when your children were tiny um, that you wish you'd been been able oh, to access? Oh, goodness. Um, probably with my first child in terms of do you mean a product like a, a baby product so like the, a baby carrier would have been my personal product um so am i can i say brand yeah. names um yeah the um ergo baby um, yeah yeah, cool. yeah the ergo baby just the classic uh got me through uh, my second child and i wish i had it around for my first child um that was essential and i wish yeah, I wish I'd uh, had that right from the start. I mean, that was uh, oh, an absolute lifesaver, but I should have bought that so much earlier. Um, and what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given in terms of um, parenting or probably, business? Probably, ironically, uh, don't listen to other people. <laughs> don't take other people's advice. Just uh, trust your gut, <laughs> I guess. Uh, it can be very hard uh, when there's so much conflicting advice um, but everybody's situation is so unique. Um, and again, it's going back to that corny cliche of, you know, mother knows best, but you really do. Um, so, yeah, don't, I think, uh, don't trust too much in what other people say and trust your gut. Good advice. Very good advice. <laughs> Um, thank you so much. Um, I've loved talking to you. It's been really interesting. Um, thank you. Yeah, so thanks for talking to me. Thank and you. also good it. luck, you know. Hopefully we'll see the end of the pandemic. You can get back on track. <laughs> thank you. Let's see. Who Your knows? Traveling track. In six months' time, might still be here. <laughs> might have to change the blog to the, uh, I don't know, the home mum. <laughs> 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 yeah it's it doesn't have quite such pandemic, a pandemic to it does it but uh <laughs> let's see thank you so much not quite no thank you take care bye-bye brilliant thanks a lot thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did remember to check back here for the next installment of the big juggle or hit subscribe so it downloads automatically 